so tonight, actually not tonight, but we're about to turn a corner in the book of Exodus, beginning with Exodus 20. You know what comes in Exodus 20, right? It's the law, Ten Commandments, starting with the Ten Commandments. Um, God is going to give His law to His people. Um, and, of course, that begins as they're at Mount Sinai and they are given the Ten Commandments. But what we're going to find, I don't know if, you know, a lot of times we read the book of Exodus and it's exciting and it's narrative and it's gripping and it's great. And then you get to the point where they're at Mount Sinai and they start getting all of these laws and all of these patterns for the tabernacle and most people stop reading there they just move on to something else to move on to the next thing uh, of course we're not going to do that we're given the 10 commandments in exodus 20 but we're also in the chapters that are following we're given lots of other laws lots of other commands lots of other things laws about how the priests should act and what their jobs are laws about worship laws about punishment for crimes and and restitution for those who have been wronged uh, those who break the law against others and the punishments that should happen to them. A lot of the rest of Exodus is giving different laws and different kinds of laws as the people are there at Mount Sinai and God is speaking to them, giving them the uh, requirements for uh, pleasing Him, walking in relationship with Him. So before we launch into the Ten Commandments, which we're going to do next week, and all of the specific laws that follow... I want to first give you kind of a, a biblical theological framework to understand the law of God. The, and when I say the law of God, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, I'm talking about all the laws that are reiterated in the New Testament, but I'm also talking about all those laws that we don't know any, what to do with, you know? The laws about, you know, if your ox falls in a ditch and you're walking by and you've you got to help your neighbor's ox, and the laws about putting the fence around the roof of your house, and, you know, all the laws that were like, I have no idea what that means. I don't know why that's in here, and I don't know how it applies to me. The laws that we kind of just, honestly, just gloss over. And, and so before we launch in the Ten Commandments, I want to give you like a theological framework to understand the law and the different kinds of laws in the context in which they're given and how they're understood from a New Testament perspective. You with me? Okay. This, um, this tonight... We have the potential for me just to go run off at the mouth and go real fast and not, not wait, not make sure we all understand and all that kind of stuff. So make sure if I get to moving too fast, you don't understand something, you want clarification, let's stop and let's talk about it. Because if you leave here not understanding, when we walk through these, the Ten Commandments are easy, you know, so we, we know those you know, we're going to apply those to our life, and that's, that's all good. But when we get to the subsequent chapters, Exodus 21 and 22, and we start talking about all these laws that really don't seem like they apply to us at all, you have to have a biblical foundation for how they're to be used, what they mean, and why we keep some laws and don't keep others. So one of the most common attacks on the Bible, you've probably heard it many times, is the continuity and the consistency of the Old Testament laws. You might hear someone say, yes, of course, Leviticus says homosexuality is a sin, but it also says don't eat shellfish, don't wear mixed fabrics. So if you follow this and you tell me homosexuality is a sin, you also got to not eat shellfish. Are you eating shellfish? Well, then you're breaking the law. You know, those kind of attacks are pretty common. So we're going to begin this portion of Exodus by giving you kind of a contextual understanding of the law and the framework that Scripture presents the law, and you're going to see why, why it is that we, in fact, as New Testament believers, keep some laws of the Old Testament and don't keep others. Okay, y'all with me? All right. This is this is uh, this is not as easy for me as just walking down through the text. So stop me if we get to going too fast, or if I get to using words that you never heard before. Okay. So, yeah, if you have a question or don't understand something, let's stop. Let's get, it, let's get it done. I probably don't have answers for every question you might ask, so be ready for that, but we can think through these things together. Sometimes, oftentimes actually, because salvation is by grace and not of the law, you can't 
be saved by keeping law. You can't be right before God by keeping law. It's grace in the new covenant that was foretold in the Old Testament, that is fulfilled in the New Testament. Sometimes because salvation is by grace, we think of God's law as a negative thing, don't we? Sometimes we fear God's law. We, we run from even dealing or thinking about God's law. You know, many people have wrong ideas of how the law relates to the Christian life. You might hear things like, well, Jesus fulfilled the law, so we don't have to live by it. We don't have to worry about it at all. You might hear the law is only for Israel, only for the Jews. It doesn't apply to us today. You might hear that the law doesn't speak to those in the new covenant or that trying to obey God's commands, if you're trying to live by God's commands, it means you're a legalist and that you're under a curse and you don't need to live under the curse. You're freed from the curse of the law. You know? You'll hear these things. Sometimes the, the most ridiculous one to me is you just need to love like Jesus commanded and not worry about the commandments in the Old Testament. You know, he said, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And they often don't realize he's quoting Leviticus 19 when he says that. So all these things are problematic, to say the least, but they're very, very common. They're very common, and you probably, at some point in your Christian walk, have been confronted with someone who says, well, wait a minute, if you tell me this is a sin, then this has got to be a sin too. You're not allowed to eat shrimp or lobster. You know? You're not allowed to wear mixed fabrics. You're not allowed to do those things. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these things from the Bible's perspective, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what we find in the Old and the New, the way the apostles used the law and the apostles quoted the law of God, the law of God is not bad. It's not a curse and it's not evil. Paul says in, in Romans that the law is holy, the law is just, the law is righteous. David in Psalm 119 said, oh, how I love your law. The problem is we don't understand the law and how the law is rightly used. So that's where we're going to begin tonight. We're going to ask two questions. Number one, why are all these laws here and what is their use for us as New Testament believers? And we're going to ask the second question is, why do we keep some laws and not other laws? Okay? Everybody good? All right, I, I have a, 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 an inert fear of boring you to death with a lecture. So if, if there's anything that we need to discuss, let's stop and talk about it. Okay, so why are these laws here? What we're going to talk about is what theologians often call the three uses of the law. So you'll hear this all over the place if you're reading books about the law or books about the interpretation of the Old Testament, even commentaries, things like that. You'll hear about the three uses of the law. So we're going to walk through these very slowly, and then we're going to use some examples in the law to show you how they apply. You with me? Okay. All right. So the first use of the law is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's a mirror to show humanity their sin. The first use of the law is it shows us our sin. The law is not meant to save us. It never was meant to save us. It cannot save us. All it can do is point out our sin. That's all it can do. The, the Galatians, in Galatians, Paul says that the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor to drive us to, the, to Christ. And one of uh, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse um, has this quote, and I really love this quote. He says, the law of God is like a mirror... Now, the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. But the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in the mirror and you find that your face is dirty, you do not then reach and take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water. So the first use of the law is it drives us to, the, to Christ. It shows us our need. It shows us our sin. It is a picture of God's perfect standard. And as we examine our own life, we see I haven't met that standard. And there is no hope for me because these standards are just saying, don't do this. And if I've done it, I'm in big trouble and there's no hope. So it drives me to the only Savior that there is. It drives me to the only salvation that there is. I think Barnhouse's illustration is a very, very good one. In fact, Paul in Romans says, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. Is there any questions about that? It's pretty self-explanatory, and we've talked about it over the last few weeks. The first use of the law, how it shows us our sin. Good? Okay. 
We might get done early because I, I was expecting a lot of questions. The second use of the law is to restrain evil. And we're going to see this as we walk through Exodus. One of the verses that's used to demonstrate this is Exodus 20, 20, where it says, Moses said to the people, do not fear. This is after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. And after that, Moses says, don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The second use is to restrain evil. And the idea is that the threat of the law, the reality that there is a law and a lawgiver is meant to deter society and people from sin. The threat of the law is that there is a God who punishes and there is a God who has given his law to humanity and he punishes sin and he rewards doing good. So it kind of acts as a restraint on the consciences of people to keep society and to keep people from devolving into chaos. Now, of course, it doesn't do this perfectly, and it doesn't do it totally, you know, because there's, we all sin. There's still people that sin. There's still wicked and wretched people that don't care whether they murder or, or steal or anything like that. But it is in an intended use of the law to warn of the judgment of God. You see that? It's specifically just a warning that you are, that there is a God. He does require things of us, and He punishes sin. With me? Okay. Wow. We're doing good. The third use of the law is what most applies to us in Christ. The third use of the law is it is a perfect guide for living in Christ. So in Christ, we're saved. We're not saved by the law. We're not saved by keeping the law. But in Christ, we are saved, and the law is no longer a threat to us. We're delivered from the curse, from the punishment of the judgment that comes with the law. But the law is still a guide that shows us how to live lives pleasing to God. So even though the law cannot save, does not save, was never intended to save, it cannot do anything for, to, uh, to relieve the sin or the filth that is upon us, what it does do is once we are saved and the curse, the punishment, the judgment of the law has been taken from us, we see the law of God now as a guide to show us how to live. So as Christians, there's, there's a lot of people say, well, now we're under grace, we're not under law, so we don't have to worry about those things. But those same people would never say, because I'm saved by grace, I can now go kill people. You know, they would never say, because I'm saved by grace, I can lie and I can steal and I can do it. They would never do that because the law still stands. It, it is uh, um, a perfect holy standard of what God expects of his people. So as we're saved, we're now liberated to keep the law. We're liberated by the Spirit to live in the Spirit as the Spirit guides us to live according to God's commands. Even if your standard is, which Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, in love the Lord your God, love your heart, my soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? So what does it mean? If someone says, we don't do the law, we don't do the Ten Commandments, we just love. Well, what does love mean? It means not lying to your fellow man. It means not stealing from them. It means honoring God. It means having no other gods before him. That's what loving God and loving your neighbor mean. And so when we do this, it is summarized. Uh, the commandments are summarized by love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But we see how to love them by looking at the law of God and saying, okay, this is what God requires for us to live in relationship to Him. It's a guide to show us how to live pleasing to the Lord, what God expects, what His holy nature requires. Um, it's not meant to save us, and it never was meant to save Israel either. Even, even Israel coming to Mount Sinai, the law was not meant as to be a means of salvation. The Israelites had already been saved. They'd been delivered from slavery in Egypt by God's grace, not because they deserved it, not because they were keeping His law, not because they were worshiping right, Him rightly. They were doing none of these things. But God came because He had made a promise to Abraham, and He delivered them. He, he saved them out of Egypt um, to redeem them by His grace, brought them all the way to Mount Sinai, and then He gave them His law. This is how you're going to live in relationship with Me. This is the covenant that I am making with you. He saved them by grace, then gave him the law to show them how to live. The law is meant to define the relationship between 
uh, believers and God, those who have been redeemed and God, and how we, how we should live. doesn't mean that we keep it perfectly, but it defines God's holy standard, which is a way we live uh, after Him by the Spirit to please God. Questions, comments? Wow, pretty straightforward, huh? There's a quote here by J.C. Ryle I put up for you. It says, There is no greater mistake than to suppose that a Christian has nothing to do with the law and the Ten Commandments because he cannot be justified by keeping them. We all know that. You cannot be justified by keeping the law. The same Holy Ghost which convinces the believer of sin by the law and leads him to Christ for justification will always, the Holy Spirit will always lead him to a spiritual use of the law, and this is the use as a friendly guide in the pursuit of sanctification. You see that? So the law is no longer, we, we no longer fear it because we've been delivered from it by Christ. We no longer uh, fear judgment. We no longer walk on eggshells hoping God's just going to love me, but you know, even though I haven't done right. We've been saved. We've been justified by Christ, but the law is still the guide. We still know that we're to have no other gods before Him. We still know that we're not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to, bear, not to uh, covet. We still know that we're not to do these things. We still know that they're wrong. So as the Spirit leads us from the inside out, we live according to the law, not to be right with God, not to be saved, but because we desire to please Him. Okay? Everybody with me? So first thing I want you to see is we looked at these uses of the law. We're going to circle back to it in just a minute. The gospel is not opposed to the law of God. It's not. That's why Jesus said in the verse before this, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. So just because you and I are not able to keep the law perfectly, God does not diminish his holy standard for us. He does not bring down His holiness, His righteousness, His perfection, His law. He doesn't bring it down, but you know, it's not, He's not grading us on a bell curve. It is the perfect standard of the law. And just because we can't keep it, it doesn't mean that He brings it down to our level. He gave a substitute to keep it perfectly, to stand in our place. So with being saved by Christ, justified by Christ, the law is still the law, but now we have a substitute, a sacrifice that was given to keep the law for us and die, pay the penalty for in our place. But also what comes with that is a new heart, being born again. And with that new heart, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that, that causes us to desire to keep His law, desire to live for Him. So now we're not living, we're not, we're not trying to striving to keep His law because it's some kind of duty and we know we have to do it and man, I hate it, but darn it, we just need to be good and we need to be right. No, we have a heart now that desires it, that wants it, that even when we fail, we're convicted of it and we turn back to Him and we desire to keep His law. We desire to live after Him from the inside out, not from the outside in. So the law is useful. The law is good. Paul says the law is holy. So let's take an example, and we'll look at this example, and we'll see how the law is used in the three uses of the law. The example is what we're going to see as we walk through the Ten Commandments. Self-explanatory, pretty obvious, you've heard it before, you shall not steal. That is, that is a law of God, part of the moral law of God, the unchanging law of God. So the first use of the law how is it applied to this? Remember, the first use of the law is to show us our sin. How does this command, how is it used in the first use of the law? Remember, it shows us our sin, drives us to Christ. That's the first use. You shall not steal. What's the first use of the law in this command? Well, if you steal, what is, what is, what is the use of the law in this? Yeah, it condemns you. It shows you your sin. And if you want salvation, if you want redemption, if you want forgiveness, if you want freedom from the curse that you're now under because of the penalty that you have broken this law, what do you have to do? Go to Christ. 
Go to Christ and find that forgiveness. So the first use of the law, if you steal, it shows you your guilt. You need a pardon. It drives you to the mediator. It drives you to the Savior. It reveals your guilt and pushes you to the only hope that you have, which is the Savior, Jesus Christ. What about the second use of the law? To warn people of the threat of God's judgment and punishment. Societies of the threat of God's judgment. And y'all with me? Oh, man, it's easy. It, it's not hard. Huh? No, I don't have multiple choice. There will be an exam when this is over. Yeah, there's consequences. So whether you are a believer or not, whether you understand or not, whether you know Christ or not, this law tells all people everywhere it's wrong to steal. And there is a God who punishes sin. So they may suppress the truth in unrighteousness and say, I'm going to do what I want to do, whatever. But they know because the law of God is embedded in our conscience, they know that it's wrong to steal. And therefore, society is right in making laws against theft because it is a command of God. And the second use of the law warns us against sinning against God. It's meant to be it's meant to be a deterrent so people won't steal. And so it, it doesn't always, you know, it's not perfect, perfect and people still do steal, but there are um, some, a, a use of this law that is a, the warning that deters people to know that it's wrong, to know that stealing's wrong, to know that there's a God in heaven that punishes sin. And the third use of the law, it shows us what living a life pleasing to the Lord as a Christian is, and that's easy, Right? As believers saved in Christ, it's how we live. We know, we know not stealing doesn't save you. If, you. if you go your whole life without stealing, which I would wager none of us have done, even as a little kid, if you go your whole life without stealing, that doesn't save you. It doesn't save you at all. I mean, if you've sinned in one part of the law, you've broken the whole of the law, and you're still condemned. So not, sinning, not stealing doesn't save you. But as believers saved in Christ, we don't steal. Why? Because we want to live a life that is pleasing to God. We know that we've been saved. We know that we've been justified. We know that we've been redeemed. And now we love Christ because he's given us a new heart. And we want to live a life pleasing to God. So we know we don't lie. We don't murder. We don't steal. We don't put any gods before him. We fall into those things, but there is conviction of those things. And we know that they're wrong. And we turn as the Holy Spirit convicts us and we walk uh, according to his will, showing love to God, showing love to neighbor by keeping his law. Okay? So you understand that the law is useful, right? It's not a relic to be thrown away because we're New Testament believers. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, look at this, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Sounds awful legalistic, doesn't it? Legalism is not desiring to live by the law of God. Legalism is thinking that you're saved by living by the law of God. So a legalist is a person who says, I'm keeping the law of God and therefore God is pleased with me. No. I mean, yes, that's what a legalist is. But saying I'm saved by Jesus Christ and I want to live a life pleasing to God so I, I live by the law, that's not legalism at all. That's faithfulness. That's faithfulness to God because the law of God reveals God's unchanging character. And His character doesn't change. His nature doesn't change no matter what we think, no matter what we do. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? I know you're thinking, man, I just came to hear the Ten Commandments. <laughs> this is important because after the Ten Commandments, we're going to talk about all kinds of laws about how we handle other people's oxen and how, you know, how land is redeemed and all kinds of things. So you need to understand this. And that's the question everybody wants answered. I, I imagine we're going to get a lot more discussion on this next question. The question everybody, thank you. The question everybody wants answered, what about the other laws? 
We got the Ten Commandments. Everybody knows them. We're all good there. But what about all the other laws? What about the sacrifices of the animals? What about not cutting your beard? What about wearing mixed fabrics? What about eating shellfish? What about all the debts getting canceled in the year of Jubilee? I like that law. Wouldn't that be awesome? Why do we keep some laws and we don't keep others? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Anybody know? I mean, I'm going to tell you. So, huh? Yes and no. So basically her answer was the, some of the laws were given in the culture of Israel and the, you know, way back then, and, and that's correct, they are. Um, and when the culture changes, kind of we change the law to fit our culture. That's, a, that's dangerous if you, if you talk about it that way. I understand what you mean, and you're, I think you're right in the way that you mean it, but when you start saying it's a cultural thing for this law, and therefore our culture's changed, so we change that law, you open a big can of worms right there. Why don't we do that with other laws? You know, homosexuality is the biggest one. Our culture has changed. There's no doubt about that. Homosexuality, homosexuality is all of a sudden not a sin anymore. Uh, it actually is, but the society doesn't think it is. So do we change to fit our culture? And the answer to that is a resounding no. The reason why we keep, and yes, you are kind of correct because we're talking about the context of Israel and those things, but the reason why we keep some laws and we don't keep others is because there is a threefold division of the law in the Old Testament. And we're going to, we're going to describe that to you here so you know the difference and you can see the difference and why we don't keep. Not just, I'm not just going to say, well, we don't keep that because we're not Israel. I'm going to show you why we don't keep that because we're not Israel. So the threefold division of the laws in the Old Testament, the first one is the civil laws. We're going to talk about all these in depth so you don't have to know them right off the bat. The ceremonial laws and the moral laws. Okay, those are the three, that's the threefold division. It's, it's been known for a long time. And when you understand how these laws are used in the Old Testament, you begin to see the reason why the apostles stressed some laws. And then they said, oh, well, we don't have to go to the temple no more. We don't have to offer sacrifices no more. We don't have to do the priests no more. You see the difference in the way the apostles used these laws. So first, let's look at the civil laws. The civil laws that we're going to come across in Exodus, I mean, there's a lot of them in Exodus. We're going to walk through this as we go through the book. The civil laws were basically the, uh, the, the criminal code for the nation of Israel. It included procedures and punishments and regulations and restrictions. It, it, it governed Israel under, under God's direct rule. It included things like guidance, guidelines for war, um, restrictions, and 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 uh, procedures for the redemption of property and the redemption of land, regulations for debt and repayment. It also included punishments, punitive punishments, and how they were to be dealt out. So let me give you a couple examples, and I'll show you what I mean by this. So Leviticus 25, 25 through 31 is about the redemption of property. It says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then, then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. So this is, this is a law given, a civil law for Israel, about the redemption of property. And you go back to talking, you go back and you can see in the law about how property was to stay in the family and it was to revert back in the Jubilee year. And it's talking how you redeem properly. Obviously, we don't hold this law today regarding redeeming possessions and redeeming property and keeping in the family, keep possessions with family. Uh, and, and so we are under a whole different set of laws. With our, If you walk up to somebody and say, I know I sold you this house seven years ago, but I want to redeem this house. 
So I'm going to calculate, you know, the years since I sold it, and I'm going to pay you back this much, you know. We don't do that, and we can't do that because it goes against the laws that we are under in our government. Another, another example that may illustrate this even better is what we're going to find when we get to Exodus 22. It says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief... <coughs> Excuse me, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So in this instance, you pay five times. In this instance, you pay double. It's uh, the laws about punishment, the civil code of Israel as laws are broken. Now, this is what you need to see. There are moral laws in here as well. You know, still wrong to steal, still wrong to break in somebody's house, you know, but there are principles that we can glean from this law but we don't keep this. There, there's, no, there's no law that says if you steal, you're going to have to pay back five times. If you steal, you go to jail. That's what our laws say. You know, if, you, if you break into somebody's house, you go to jail. Uh, you don't, and if, if you're caught being a thief, what happens? You go to jail. You're not sold into slavery. And so to go back to Israel's civil law means that we would break the laws that we are currently under. Does that make sense? Now, make sure you see this. There is what's called the general equity of the law. And these civil laws weren't given willy-nilly. There are principles within these laws that are wrapped up in the nature of God, and we call that the general equity of the law. So to wrong someone in theft, the general equity of this law means you must make restitution. You know? And here you also see in this particular one, you see the reality of self-defense of an intruder in your home. It says you know, if, the, uh, if, he's, if he's struck while he breaks into your home, then you know, there's no blood guilt. You know, he's paid the price. So there are, there are principles that we glean from the civil law as we talk about those things. One is there's a, there's a law that says you put a parapet, you put a fence around the roof of your house. And that was because people would congregate on the roof of their houses when it was hot and those kind of things. And the fence was to keep people from falling off. We don't put fences on the top of our houses because we don't hang out up there. You know, that's not a law we keep. But the general equity of that law says you take care of people when they're on your property. You protect them when you're on your property. You see what I mean? So there's a general equity that we keep for these civil laws, but we don't go back to the civil law. We don't go back. Our justice system doesn't require commerce and restitution through oxen, you know, or, or sheep or anything like that. If you would put it in regular terms, if somebody steals your stereo, then they have to give you five stereos. You know, and I'm sorry, that's not how it works. That's how it worked in Israel under God's rule, but that's not how it works here. And we can't go back to the civil law of Israel. And you ask, why can't we go back to the civil law of Israel? Because two places in 1 Peter 2, 13 and in Romans 13, chapter, verse 1 and 2, we're told by an apostle, a Jewish apostle, that let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So if you took that law from Exodus 22, we just read, and somebody steals from you, and they don't have any money to make restitution, and you sell them into slavery, you have just broken the law. You've just broken the law of our country. Y'all with me? Are we confused? It's a good law? What, not to steal or to sell people into slavery? Susan. Huh? Well, I, I agree. I agree, but you know as well as I do that often doesn't happen. So you go to court, somebody stole your stuff, and the judge says, you know, your stuff's gone. We can't find it. You don't get your stuff back, but they're going to go to jail for 10 years. We can't go back to the civil law that says, no, no, no. If this happens, they have to make restitution. If they can't make restitution, we sell them into slavery. You know, we can't do that. We can't go back to that law because we are under the law that we're under. 
Okay? You with me? We're never commanded to go back to the civil and societal laws of the nation of Israel. But remember this. You've got to remember this. They're not just marked away and thrown away. There is principles that abide forever in these laws. And as we look at them in Exodus, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, and those abide forever, those are the moral law. We'll get to that in a second. But the civil laws that we are going to look at, like the one we just read in Exodus 22, we're going to examine that law. We're going to say, okay, we know we can't sell anybody into slavery. We know we can't stone them to death when they do these things. But what is the general principle that we pull out of this for us, for living a godly life? for doing what God commands. And we see those, you know, if, if you steal against someone, if you, th- th- if you, whatever, you know what I mean, if you steal something, then you make payment to re- restore that. You make payment to restore that. Or, you know, you, you're punished for that. If you, you know, the, somebody breaks into your house, you know, we, we saw that if, uh, if they're struck and they die, there's no blood guilt for that. You're, you're able to defend yourself if someone breaks into your house. You know, so we, we pull out those principles, the general equity of the law, and we apply that knowing that, yes, this is part of God's unchanging nature. You with me? Uh, we're going to need to know this because... The Ten Commandments are simple, and we're going to get through them easy, but all of these laws about selling oxen and restitution five times and seven times and all this stuff, the question is going to come up, well, what do we do with that, you know, that you shall not boil a goat in his mother's milk, you know, I mean, what do we do with that? We need to know what kind of law that we're dealing with. So those are the civil laws that regulated the nation of Israel, regulated their society, regulated their social justice, regulated their criminal justice, regulated how they functioned as a society under the direct rule of God. Okay? The second is ceremonial law. Ceremonial laws were regulated. I'm going to give you an example of all these at the end, and we're going to work through it together. Ceremonial laws were laws about regulations for worship. Laws about cleanliness before God, sacrifices, how one would come into the tabernacle, how one would come before God. If you touch a dead body, you can't come before God. You need to cleanse yourself for a week, and then you need to go and and go to the priest and have them do their thing, and then you could come back into the camp, and you could come to those things. Uh, Ceremonial laws include the priestly duties and the the clothing of the priests, uh, clean and unclean foods, the festivals of holiness and worship, feasts tabernacles and all those kind of things. The laws uh, regulate the tabernacle, the altar, the the furniture in the tabernacle, the regulations for being holy before God and clean before God, and the regulations that distinguished you as an Israelite from all the other nations around you. These laws, these ceremonial laws, are completely and totally fulfilled in Christ. They are abrogated. So there is some general equity in some of these laws, and we'll see that as we go, but they are fulfilled in Christ. In Colossians 2.16, it says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In Acts chapter 10, Jesus appears to Peter and lets down a sheet full of unclean animals. And what does he tell him? He says, Eat. I can't eat. The law says don't eat shellfish. Don't eat hooved animals. Jesus says don't call clean what I've made clean. And so same thing with Gentiles and those things. He could go to a Gentile's house because God has made them clean. The book of Hebrews says we no longer need the priesthood. We no longer need men to come and, and intercede with God for us. We no longer need the temple. Jesus is our temple, and we are the temple as the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So there's no longer a need for priests and sacrifices and all of those things. Jesus has fulfilled those things. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, By a single offering, He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So anyone, listen to me, anyone in Christ is clean before God and able to come to the throne of grace boldly. So there have been times where I've been at people's houses and a loved one has passed away. And, you know, one, one little lady from the funeral home shows up and I have to help carry the body out. You know, it, does that mean I'm unclean for a week and I can't come to church? I can't come before? No, Jesus has made us clean. 
the ceremonial law is, is, is abrogated. They're the shadows of the things to come. They're fulfilled in Christ. Questions about that? Okay. Last one is the moral law. The moral law reflects the nature of God Himself. It is forever binding on all human beings. It's universal. It's eternal. It reflects God's nature. It is true for all cultures at all times, in all places, everywhere. And it's embodied and summarized in the Ten Commandments. But there are other laws as well in the Old Testament that reflect God's nature and are universal at all times, in all places. And they're true and they're binding eternally. You can see this in the fact that we're about to come to the giving of the law in Exodus 20, but you can see the truth and the abiding characteristics of the law, especially the Ten Commandments, before we ever got to Mount Sinai, can't you? How do you know murder's wrong if you don't have Mount Sinai? Huh? When was murder first condemned? Yeah, yeah, Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother. He's condemned for murder. Moses killed the Egyptian. Condemned for that. The Sabbath command, we saw it as we were walking through Exodus. It was given when the manna was given. He says, you're going to rest one day. Noah's son was condemned for dishonoring his father. You know, Rachel stole the household gods of uh, uh, Laban. Yeah. Abraham lied about his wife being his sister. Uh, Abimelech was furious with Abraham because he almost committed adultery with Abraham's wife because Abraham lied. So those, ten, those commandments that we're looking at, those moral laws, which are embodied in the Ten Commandments, not just the Ten Commandments, those moral laws were true before they ever got to Mount Sinai, and they're true afterward. Almost all of the Ten Commandments, except the Sabbath, is, uh, is re-spoken, not re-spoken, but is reiterated in the New Testament. Jesus reiterated them. What, what must I do to be saved? To the rich young ruler, he said, you know the commandments, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. Paul reiterates them in Romans 13. And Jesus said all of these commandments, the first and the second table of the Ten Commandments, are summarized in love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We're still called to do that. It is the moral law of God. So before the law was ever given at Mount Sinai to Moses, before there was the Mosaic law, as they call it, the moral law stood and was true and reflected the nature of God. The command to not commit adultery, the, the moral law, you know, and we know the command to not commit adultery is much deeper than that. Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you're breaking that command to not commit adultery. So we also know that human sexuality is part of the moral law of God. Why? It was established at creation. It's a creation ordinance. God himself at the beginning ordained and established marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. And the purpose is to glorify him. And as we find out in Ephesians, to represent Christ and his church. A picture of the beautiful relationship of Christ and his church. And that is why the apostles tell us in the New Testament, we don't do the priests, we don't do the temple, we don't do the sacrifices, we don't do all of these things anymore. Don't let anybody judge you about keeping the festivals, or the feasts, or all that kind of stuff. But they do say several times in the New Testament that homosexuality is still wrong, still sinful, still all those things. It's a part of the moral law of God. So in the rest of the book of Exodus, we're going to be going through a lot of different laws. We're going to begin with the Ten Commandments, which basically we all know, and those are, those are going to be easy for us to apply. But we're also going to see a lot of other kinds of laws, and we're going to have to look at, at it contextually through this foundation to say, is this part of the civil code of Israel where we can draw a principle from it, but we're not building fences on our roof? Or is it part of the ceremonial law that is fulfilled in Christ and we're clean and don't have to do anything to make ourselves clean? Or is it part of the moral law of God that still stands eternal today? The rest of the book of Exodus is going to be all of these different kinds of laws. Now you need to understand these categories. And you need to understand, in, when you understand these categories, you start to understand how the apostles used the law. Why Jesus could say, 
not one jot, not one tittle from the law is going to pass away. But he could also say, when God said, you're not allowed to eat this showbread that's in the temple, he could, he could also say, you know, now David, David did it. You know, David, he, he could see the difference between the ceremonial law, which was cleanliness and the unholiness and how we come before God and fulfilled in Christ, but also see the moral law of God that, that spans eternity and is universal. Now, the problem that we're going to have, and I'm going to illustrate this with two verses, and then we're going to go. The problem we're going to have is that in the Old Testament, in the rest of Exodus, in Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy, uh, and Numbers specifically, these categories of laws are not neatly separated for us. They're not like, okay, this chapter is all moral law, this chapter is all civil law, this chapter is all, it's not going to be that way. They're all given together, and they're all jumbled together. So we have to see them in the categories that the apostles use. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 22, 22. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Okay? What's the moral law that still abides today and universally will abide? Adultery. It's wrong. It's always wrong. Always. And not just adultery. Jesus said it's not just the act of adultery. It's the heart. It's the heart of lust. It's the heart that it's the heart of sexual immorality. So that's part of the moral law of God. It's wrong. Period. What is the civil law that is demonstrated here? Civil law is the punishment, the punitive, the societal regulations for Israel. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> if, okay, let's do it this way. If you, if you catch two people in the act, you can't kill them. You, you will go to jail. You're, you're breaking the law of the land. That is a civil, penal law that was given for Israel in the time as the government basically was the elders of Israel under the rule of God. You see? You understand? So civil law and moral law are here in this together. Okay? Now I'm going to let you guys do one. Okay? Yes. Right, right. It's not that. It's being different. So, so, and I don't know how to kind of articulate it quite right. Maybe the last one articulated quite well. But so, how, how do you know? Okay. So, let me restate your question and you tell me if I'm understanding correctly. She's asking, how do you know which are civil laws that we, we don't follow and which are moral laws that we do. Is that right? No, I'm saying how do you So how, do we, how is it acceptable to change the punitive part of the law today rather than just keep it and execute them? Is that right? Yeah, how do we get to that point? Law of the land. Huh? Law of the land. So that's, that's the answer. So if you, were to, if you were to say, you know, Deuteronomy 22, 22 is clear, and therefore I am going to, I'm going to kill both of y'all. Uh, you have broken the law and you have violated Romans 13, 1, 2. You violated 1 Peter where he says, be subject to the authorities that you're under. So not only, not, we can't go back to the civil law, 
not only because um, it was ancient Israel and they were under the rule of God, but we would be, we would be liable um, not only for our witness in our culture, but we would also be breaking the laws of our own government and our own That I don't know, because it, it changed. I mean, all I know is modern American law. You know, I don't know, you know, in the Middle Ages, they may still have, I don't know, I don't know. That's a question I don't think I can answer. And I'm surprised that's the first question I don't think I can answer. No, Israel's not doing this today either. Yeah, they have a justice system that's kind of, kind of like we have. So it's not a perfect rule because we're going to see some things that we're going to struggle with how they fit and where they fit. Is this ceremonial? Is this civil? Is this? Uh, but I want to just give you the basic framework of how these laws are interpreted. So not only for us to understand as we're walking through it in Exodus and, and Leviticus and all those things, if we happen, I mean, that's a way to clear out a Bible study right there if we do it on Leviticus. But, but also that, that needs to be known widely in the church because the biggest attack is, well, you say homosexuality is wrong, but you're still eating shellfish, you're wearing mixed fabric, you're not cutting your beard, you're, you know. So we need to understand how the apostles use these laws and how, how they are, are fulfilled in Christ or there's a general equity that we draw principles from and apply to our situation. And also there's a moral law that is universal and it doesn't change and it never changes. It's wrong to murder if you're an Aztec that does human sacrifice and it's wrong to murder if you're a modern day American as well because the, the image of God in man doesn't change and God's nature doesn't change. Okay? Yes. What do you begin with Christ King? I mean, I'm thinking of the woman who is brought before him who is caught in adultery and then is in the stone. Yeah. Prison and then literally got killed after his coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an instant on you're breaking the law and you get to prison. He was punishing. It was more of being the conscience of doing what he said. Mm-hmm. Did y'all hear that? I don't know if I could summarize that well. She said it, she brought up the, the woman who's caught in adultery and how she was caught in the act and they brought her and they were going to affect that law. They were going to stone her to death. And Jesus said, let the one who... Uh, and Jesus did it so masterfully. He didn't say, no, 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 we're not killing people. He said, go ahead, kill her, throw some stones. Let the one who is without sin go first. And they were all like, well, that ain't me. You know, so yeah, there, there, could, there could be a case made for that. Because the Holy Spirit directs us where to go. Yeah, the Holy Spirit directs you, for sure, for sure. Yes. Isn't it in Paul that it was found that he was in God? Yes, yes. Yeah. And he, she said, and then he followed that with go and sin no more. Uh, and so he was cognizant of the fact that she had broken the moral law, but Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn the world. He came that the world may be saved. And it's not specifically told in that text, but I, you know, I, I don't have a problem believing that, that Jesus saved her, you know, that she understood her guilt. She understood the, the penalty that she was about to pay, and he, he rescued her from that. You know? So uh, I knew you were going to ask a question. Go ahead, Evan. Now, there are people who do. He asked, since the civil law is, we don't keep the civil law specifically, one of the reasons we don't is because it violates our law of the land. Should we be advocating for the civil law's reinstatement by advocating for the death penalty for adultery? Um, there is a group of people that believe in what's called theonomy that do advocate for those things, that do advocate for the death penalty. Um, that 
that's a sticky issue. That, that really is because if you do, uh, in the verse we put up there, you know, that's a clear violation of the moral law. That is a clear punitive punishment of the civil law. But if you do that, if you do that for that law, then you have to do that for all the other laws as well. You know, you have to advocate. If we're going to go back to the civil law of Israel, we have to go to the whole civil law of Israel. So if you're asking me, is it wrong for execution to be the punishment for adultery? I have to say no, because it wasn't wrong then. You know, is it wrong now? Yes, you can't. I mean, our laws are not going to execute someone for that, and you can't take it into your own hands and do so because you'd be breaking the law. So, yeah, that's a that's a that's a hard one. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I did not know that. Everybody hear that? He said, I'm certainly not going to summarize this right because I have no idea. I didn't know this. He said, we had the law, in, I'm assuming in America, in this country, England, in England, old England. So he had the law and then they had the equity law and the equity law took into consideration the circumstances and things like that and so did you say that now there's there's basically two laws the law and an equity law I did not know I had that's I, completely new to me it makes sense but so are they I, I go ahead Right, okay, yeah, I see. So it may have happened here as well. We just don't know when it happened. Yeah. So bottom line is there are laws that we don't follow, um, and we don't follow them for a reason. You know, we don't follow them. If they're ceremonial laws, we don't follow them because to do so would deny Christ, and we won't do that. We won't go back to priests and the sacrifices and cleanliness. and We won't do that because... That denies Christ. The civil laws we don't follow to the letter because they are not applicable for us in our culture and our society, but we do apply what's called the general equity of those. Like I said, the fence around the roof is not you go build a fence around your roof, it's you take care of the people that are in your house. You know, you somebody, a visitor comes to your house, you're responsible for them, you know. Responsible, put a fence around your pool so they don't fall in or something like that. You know, just responsible for those things. And so there is an equity. We're going to look at the, 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 the civil laws like we saw in Exodus 22 where he talks about, you know, if you steal somebody's ox, they need to repay you with five oxen. Does that mean that you always repay five times what you steal? Not necessarily, but it does mean it's wrong to steal and you must make restitution. See what I mean? There's an equity to those laws that still applies to us today, still reflects God's holy nature. And the moral law stands forever universal in all things. So we're about over time. I had one more example. Um, it's Leviticus chapter 6. I'm just going to read it to you and tell you. All three laws, all three... Um, uh, divisions of the law are in this in this law. So it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 6, saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by, this is what they do, deceiving their neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, theft, or through robbery, that's theft too, if he oppresses his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, so there's bearing false witness, swearing falsely, in any of the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt and he shall bring to the priest as a compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. Here you see all three divisions of the law. 
You see lying. You see robbery, part of the universal moral law of God. It's wrong. It's always wrong. It's always going to be wrong. But you also see part, uh, parts of the civil law. How do you deal with it? Well, you have to add a fifth to whatever you stole it. Not necessarily the things that we do today. And at the end of it, you see the ceremonial law. In order for you to be right with God with this, you have to bring a goat. You know, you have to bring a, a lamb. You have to bring whatever is required, uh, the compensation or, from your flock, in order to be right with God. That's the ceremonial law. We don't do that anymore. In order for us to be right with God, we repent of our sin, we trust in Jesus, and we, we, we move on in that forgiveness. You see the difference? And that's going to be the issue, and that's why we have such a hard time. Uh, Wendy, your thing about how we discern these things, it, it, it is difficult in some places because all of these laws, especially in Leviticus, they're all just together. There's, they might list a moral law here and a ceremonial law here and a civil law there, and they're just all put together, and we have to discern which, which kind of law we're talking about, whether it has a general equity for us today and what that is, but also the moral law that stands forever. Okay, next week we're going to get into the Ten Commandments, which are easy. They're the moral law of God, and we're going to see that they always apply, and they always apply to us. Um, but after that, we're going to look at a lot of different kind of laws about oxen and sheep and all kind of things. So you have to have this framework where we're looking at it in the way that it was intended. Questions, comments? Okay, I knew that was going to be a rough one, but I felt like I had to do it before we get into the law. Okay, let's pray. Father, we love you, and God, I just pray that you would um, that you would just use what we've talked about. Use the verses that we read. I don't know how clear I was, and I certainly don't have all the answers when it comes to this subject, God, but we pray that you would um, just show us the truth of your word. Show us the truth that you would have us to apply to ourselves, uh, God, and show us as we walk through all these laws in Exodus and the the tabernacle laws and all of the things that point to point to Christ. We pray, God, that you would just help us to rightly divide it, show us the truth of it, God, and, and help us to do your will through it. And we do thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.